Hey friends, this is Chidima, also known as the Type A Hippie, and this is the Type A Hippie Podcast, Cheatcast episode 83. And I am on with a new friend. His name is Michael King, and he is part of the good work that's happening at facingaddiction.org. So I would love to welcome you to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. So tell us a little bit about yourself in your own words briefly before we kind of get into the nuts and bolts of your story. Sure. Well, as you said, my name is Michael King, and I'm a person in long-term recovery, which for me means I haven't uh, had a drink, a drug, or placed a bet since February 16th of 2013. So I just celebrated five years in recovery a couple weeks ago, uh, which is very exciting. And you know, the, the gifts of recovery, I could spend an entire hour talking about all of the different gifts of recovery, ranging from a job I love to being a present, active, loving and attentive dad. Um, but really, the, the, the biggest gift for me has always been for the first time in my life, recovery gave me a reflection in the mirror that I get to look at and that I can feel proud of and that I can honestly say that I I like and I respect and of all the gifts recoveries brought that's really been the biggest one in my life that's awesome so first of all congratulations is in order that is a big deal five years is a huge milestone and so friends if you are struggling or um, whether you're new to recovery you are thinking about it um, or you've been on this road for a long time um, it bears repeating that Michael did it, you know, and so it's possible and available to you too. Um, and we'll talk, we'll talk more about resources and how to get connected a little bit later in the program um, because Michael is chock full of information. So um, you mentioned peace. And so it sounds like peace was not really an earmark of your life prior to five <laughs> years ago. Is that? That is accurate. Beyond, accurate is an understatement. No, you know, I, I often say that, you know, my story, um, when I was still in active addiction, I'm the kind of guy who on paper uh, looked like I had the perfect life. I sure. you know, was never homeless. I owned a home. I owned a car. Uh, I had a career in the political arena for over a decade that I just loved and was very committed to and passionate about. Um, I was married at the time. I had a, a child. Uh, my second child was born after I was in recovery. But I, I had what theoretically on paper we're all supposed to want. And yet underneath the surface uh, was this growing uh, addiction that just you know, slowly over time further and further consumed my life. And um, you know, it eventually led me into behaviors that um, you know, I never would have seen myself doing. You know, they say the, the, the one thing you say that you're never going to do, just add it to the list of things you're going to do. And that was absolutely my experience. And for me, I actually eventually I landed my dream job in, in the political arena and was doing everything I just loved. But, you know, when you're in active addiction, it doesn't really matter what those things in your life are. The addiction will overtake every single one of them. That was my experience. And I eventually I started uh, taking money from uh, I started stealing money from a cause that I believed in with all my heart and uh, that was harming individuals in my life who I cared about tremendously. 
And the day that I got recovered, the day that I first started my journey into recovery was the day it kind of all came to a head and there was nothing left to take. There was nothing left in my own. And I just, I, that was my bottom, my, my moment where I realized that something needed to change in my life. And, you know, I was able to start this journey of recovery because of a, a loving family, many of whom are also in recovery and have experienced similar uh, situations in their life and friends who stuck by me. And, uh, you know, the, the journey has just been, if, if you had told me five years ago today, when I was still sitting in a, in a 28 day treatment center, that uh, I could have the life that I have today, I would have told you, you were completely out of your mind. And I didn't even know what the idea of peace or serenity or, or as a good friend of mine likes to say that um, spiritual equanimity, which is mm -hmm. part of my experience. They're, those were just not concepts. They were completely foreign to me. Um, so I just, I can't speak endlessly enough to those who are still suffering that um, I have been there. Uh, no two stories are the same, but uh, I never thought it was possible. And I certainly never thought it was something that I was capable of, of attaining or working for. Uh, and if I can do it, I, I know that anybody can. I know that from the bottom of my heart. I love that. It's, it's true um, in terms of recovery is accessible largely to anyone. Um, and it can be bolstered and strengthened with the support of programming and um, legislation as well as community. So absolutely. I'm, I'm and, so there's, and there's many different, and there's many different ways to get there. And that's a big staple facing addiction with NCADD. We have five primary agenda items. And one of the five is promoting the idea of multiple pathways to recovery for both individuals and their families. And my journey through recovery has kind of involved the full spectrum of uh, an inpatient treatment center, living in a sober living facility, uh, continuing care, ongoing uh, uh, membership in uh, an activity in a in a 12-step fellowship. That's been my pathway. But there are many, many different ways for people to find recovery. There are multiple support groups out there. Uh, there are, there's medically assisted treatment. There are individuals who really find their pathway utilizing wellness programming and yoga and, and arts, music and wellness programs. There's just a, there's a pathway out there, I really believe, for, for, for everybody. And one of the many projects that we've actually been working on with Facing Addiction has been developing a guide that sort of outlines what all of those pathways are, something that you could, uh, we're hoping to get it completed by the end of March and to have it available uh, on facingaddiction.org for anybody who's looking for help or for someone who may have a loved one who needs help, who just wants to know what their options are. Well, where do I go? What are my choices? You know, with, with any other health condition, you go to a doctor and they tend to outline a few different potential courses, uh, courses of recovery. And we've just never been very effective when it comes to that, when it comes to addiction. And that's something that we are, we've been working on for some time. And I think it'll be a really helpful resource for individuals and their families. I love that. So um, your point raises a couple of new points because that's how, how these conversations tend to go. Right. So we'll stick a pin on kind of what happened to make you kind of make that shift. Um, in terms of your personal recovery, but also you mentioned um, 
you know, the resources. And so I love that yoga and wellness is part of it because in this um, stories of sobriety arc, um, it's a 10 episode arc. I speak with a chef who is um, into um, he's in recovery and he does a lot in terms of the recovery community and wellness um, from a nutritional perspective. And so that's mm -hmm. really important because you're right. There are multiple pathways of recovery. So in terms of facing addiction, um, what this happens sometimes, I forget the question I was going to ask. It will come back to me. So what I'm going <laughs> to do is right. Yeah. Um, you were telling us just about how life was before and was there any defining moment or anything that's poignant or stands out in terms of the day that you stopped kind of your life as you had known it before? Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a powerful question and it, it can be, um, it can be hard to sort of revisit that moment, but I think that it's really important, sure. at least in my own personal recovery, because the further away I get from active addiction and the more full life becomes, um, it's amazing for myself how I, to some extent, I have to work harder to remind myself of all the things that I'm grateful for and to kind of regain that gratitude. Because in early recovery, I experienced kind of what some people describe as those pink cloud moments of, oh my God, I'm feeling again. I'm alive in the world again. And then suddenly life begins to happen and good stuff happens, tough stuff happens. Um, for me, there was just this moment and, and I, could, I could close my eyes and, and bring myself back there of, sitting uh, at SeaTac Airport. I live up here in Seattle. I had driven to the airport with no idea why. I didn't even have a purpose. for. I just drove to the airport. Mm -hmm. um, I had a little bit of alcohol left. I had almost no money left to my name. Um, and everything, I mean, I'd known that everything that I'd had, some people go through the process of losing one thing at a time in active addiction. For me, uh, it kind of all came crashing down at once and right at the end. Um, I'd been slowly losing it over time, but I'd been too disconnected from reality really to even know what was going on around me and I think that what happened for me in that moment was that fact became apparent that everything that I'd worked for professionally personally you name it um, was about to go away and it was about to go away because of the uh, ripple effects of, of active addiction and um, the fact of the matter was that you know it, there's the expression I was just sick and tired of being sick and tired I I wanted something better uh, for myself, you know, and while I'd always tried to build personal joy from um, material things and professional accomplishments, um, there was no room for personal growth in any of it. And I, I think in some, some extent, I'd almost stopped uh, developing in that way. And I just came to the point where it was, I knew that what was going on wasn't working and something needed to change. And it was really only in that moment that I, I kind of said, I'm I am addicted. I can't stop on my own. And I need, I need help. I need someone to help. And I'm very grateful that uh, when I extended that hand, there were countless people there. Um, and uh, as I've said, when I've had the opportunity to speak at events and whatnot, I was one of the lucky ones. I was lucky that I had a supportive family. I was lucky that I had old friends uh, who were there. I was lucky that I had the ability to get immediately into a treatment facility. That was part of my early recovery, a critical part of it. Sure. I was incredibly fortunate to get into continuing care and to get right into an Oxford house, into a sober living home. But when you pause and you think about it, the way I always describe that situation is I was lucky. 
But think about that. So I was lucky to get the care that I needed in order to get well. With no other health condition do we describe ourselves as lucky to receive the care that we, that we, that we get when we need it. And the fact of the matter is, nine out of 10 individuals in need of treatment from a substance use disorder don't receive it. That's crazy. And if it was any other health condition, we would be up in arms as a country about it. And I think we're making progress, but there's still a lot of work to be done. And we're still, we're, we're not quite there yet when, despite the fact that uh, the amount of deaths from, from addiction and overdose in this country is the equivalent to September 11th taking place every three weeks, despite that startling statistic, um, 58% of Americans, according to a poll that was done by PBS in October of last year, don't see addiction as a public health emergency. That's a shocking figure. And I think as a movement, that's the number we need to bring down. And once that number starts to go down, I think we will see more and more progress being made. But the way that we do that is by coming together as a community and organizing. And that's really what facing addiction is all about, is uh, taking all of the different uh, almost constituencies, if you will, that exist under the addiction umbrella. People in recovery, affected families, prevention professionals, treatment providers, law enforcement, communities of faith, public health organizations, labor unions, you name it, getting all of these different constituencies to one table, working on a comprehensive approach to the problem. If we can organize in that fashion, which is what we've been working on for several years, and we're working now to bring that model, that community organizing driven model into communities across the country, I believe for one that that's how we're going to see that number decrease is by by organizing, by coming together with one unified voice. So you brought up what I was thinking about before, um, medical care, and just the thought of, um, because I've had other guests on, I fancy myself a, a recovery advocate is um, kind of what I feel comfortable saying because um, there's significant stigma, right, uh, around substance use disorder. And on this podcast, I use that interchangeably with addiction or with alcoholism. And you can put any other ism um, in there. Gambling is part of it when it becomes a problem. Anything that becomes a problem um, and starts to affect the person negatively mm -hmm. um, is something that can be, you know, interchanged in there. And so I've had a guest on, um, her name is Ashton Marr, and she's really big in the recovery community in um, the local area. And she was talking about how when substance use disorder is actually treated as a disease, not dissimilar from diabetes or cancer, people recover, things change, right? And so what are your thoughts around that um, and I recognize you're speaking for yourself and not necessarily anyone else. If you feel comfortable answering that question, and then I wanted to ask you something else about community organization. Sure. Well, you know, I, I always preface my answers on this stuff by saying that I'm not personally a medical professional sure. or a clinician or a therapist. However, what I do know is that addiction and sub substance use disorders is a health care This is a health issue. And despite that fact, historically speaking, we have overutilized the criminal justice system as a means to try to solve this issue. And 
if you really want to boil it down, one of the primary, another one of those five agenda items for facing addiction that I mentioned is the mainstreaming of addiction health services. It seems that all behavioral health, whether it's related to substance use disorders or mental health, exists in a completely different arena than other forms of healthcare. And we're not going to solve the problem if we continue to operate in that fashion. Um, we need to move this issue out of the criminal justice arena entirely. Prisons, our prisons and our jails are not treatment facilities. That's we right. need to move it into the healthcare, the healthcare arena if we're going to have any real solutions to the issue. And you mentioned stigma. And I think stigma is one of the single biggest reasons that that hasn't happened yet. And I, I would argue that along with a lack of uh, organization, that that stigma continues to be arguably the biggest roadblock to public policy change. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's for me, my, my bottom, uh, because of my career in the political arena, was very public. It was all over the newspaper and the news because of the things that I'd done. So I, I for one, sort of felt, um, well, I'm not anonymous, so to speak. I'm, I'm, I'm out there anyway. Um, I kind of felt a, maybe a certain obligation to speak out publicly with my own experience. Um, and I think it's going to take that. It's going to take those of us who are law-abiding, tax-paying citizens out there to speak out and to share our stories not of the, the horrors of addiction, because I think we all are well aware of the horrors of addiction, but what recovery really means and to show that we get better. This is a healthcare condition that can, in fact, be put into remission uh, when the right care is given. So speaking of that, what are some statistics that are important for the public to know? And then we will kind of come back to your story, because it does sound like life is pretty fabulous for you, which is an awesome <laughs> An awesome thing. You and I were talking. A lot of my best stuff, or not my best stuff, but uh, I get a lot of. I don't really love the word blessing, but I get why I feel compelled to use it. But I feel really grateful with the pre calls, like the pre calls I have with guests, because I get some nuggets that I won't, I, I don't share on the you know program if we want to repeat. That's different, but. Um, so it does sound like life is pretty a-okay for you now, which is awesome. But what um, I would love for you to kind of put um, numerically what statistics, um, because, well, if you're like me, I like facts and I don't like alternative facts. I like <laughs> the, real, <laughs> the real authentic deal. Right, right? exactly. Um, and granted, stats can we can kind of wield them and bend them to fit what we want. But what are some numbers or what are some things that you can share with listeners in terms of the impact that um, addiction has on a community, on a family, like who's affected and the converse when people recover, what happens? Um, because I think that sometimes puts things in perspective of like, okay, these many lives are touched by active addiction and these, you know. Sure. Well, I mean, I think that the immediate facts that always come right to my mind, and, and I think they almost articulate both the, both the need for more, but also the fact that there, there, are, there is a solution to this problem, is that there are over 23 million uh, individuals in long-term recovery while we have over 20 million still suffering with an active substance use disorder. Just think about that. It's 45 million, over 45 million Americans and their families directly impacted. That's one in three families. 
are directly impacted by this. Now, that's just directly impacted. I would argue, and I often do, that if you pay taxes, you are directly impacted by this because we spend over $400 billion a year uh, because of active substance use disorders in this country. And the overwhelming majority of that money goes towards um, cr solving problems that addiction creates and not towards prevention, access to treatment, and recovery support services for individuals in need of help. Um, I said before, nine out of 10 who are in need of treatment don't receive it. And 90% of those who become addicted start using an adolescence. So if we're going to solve this problem, I for one believe, in, and it's another one, of those, another one of those five key points for facing addiction, we need more effective evidence-based prevention practices utilized in our school system across the country. We still, in so many cases, utilize programming that has literally proven degrees of ineffectiveness, and yet we still use it while there are programming with proven degrees of efficacy. Uh, the 2016 Surgeon General's report on this issue has a wonderful section that outlines right there for you pro, uh, different programs, different um, examples of programs that studies have shown to be effective. Why are we not using them in every single school setting in America, every single pediatric setting? Why are we not using them? Um, I think it comes back to that other number, which uh, I'm sure my coworkers think I'm just an awful broken record about on this point, but 58% don't think it's an emergency. Um, I would argue that's the biggest reason why they're not getting utilized because, you know, people go off and they get their kids to school in the morning and they go to work and they're not necessarily acknowledging the extent of this problem yet. And I just think that's because we haven't effectively talked to them. Um, I think that we often, uh, We've effectively talked to ourselves, and I think as a movement, we have done a good job, and we continue to do it. Every day, we are doing even a better job by, of coalescing together, of unifying the movement, and that's really what Facing Addiction's entire purpose is, and uh, we're doing it through different programmings, like uh, the community organizing project that I mentioned before. The next step, once we do that, though, is we need to get out into our communities and reach that 58%. We need to reach the two in three who are not directly impacted by this issue. That's sure. the next step for our movement, I think. And once we do that, I think we'll start to see better continuum of care developed, more evidence-based prevention implemented in our schools, uh, more support for recovery support services, because this is the only health condition where we throw people into a treatment facility and then toss them back into their community oftentimes in the, exactly the same environment and expect them to succeed. Um, I think once we reach that 58%, we're going to start to see more progress on some of those other key issues. That's awesome. Yeah, I agree with you there. Um, there's so much. And I think historically, um, as a society, we haven't always been willing to look at things. Um, we keep having the same things happen, expecting different results. And it's always mm -hmm. too soon to have a conversation about what's not working, you know, right. Right. and we right. can stick in different issues, you know, and it, a lot of times, unless it touches us personally, or we think it's touching us personally, um, we're not feeling the need to advocate or jump into an advocacy or activism role because it's kind of like that thing from back in the day where it's like, it doesn't affect me, so I don't really have to worry about it. And that's, that's never worked out well for us. You know, when I right. don't care right. about you, it's never worked out well for me just because 
it's not me. Um, so what is life like now? You started a little bit in your intro about how you have peace, but what is, you know, after you segued from and you kind of matriculated back or reintegrated back into society, what kind of happened to lead you to facing addiction and, um, you know, just the life that you have and that you've built? Sure. Well, I, after I found recovery, I, uh, I had legal problems that I had to face. So I actually, at, at nine, months, nine months into my recovery journey, I actually had to go into the prison system for a short period of time but uh, to face some of the wreckage of the past and, and deal with um, some of the things I'd done in active addiction. And, you know, I had, I had started to, I was busing tables in a restaurant, uh, you know, after having run the state Senate Democrats here in Washington state. So I was sitting there and I, I was starting to sort of ponder, is there some way to merge my professional passion, which is really politics and organizing with my personal, my newfound kind of top personal passion that was recovery. Um, didn't really know how to do it. Was just sort of brainstorming. When I was incarcerated, though, I'll tell you, I it was such an eye-opening experience. And only in, only I feel like when you've been through some kind of recovery program can you say I'm grateful for my time in prison. But I, I can honestly say that today because it was such an eye-opening experience as I'm walking down the cell block, meeting other men who were incarcerated, and realizing that 85% of them, if not more. Uh, had some connection to alcohol and drugs, you know, whether it was active addiction or uh, being part of the trade or whatever it might be. And it just, I sat there and I just remember thinking to myself, this is not an effective way to deal with this problem. This cannot possibly, this, this is why we are caught as a nation in the mess that we find ourselves in. So after I'd gotten out, I was still bussing tables in a restaurant, trying to figure out how to merge those two passions. And in one of those strange confluences of events, uh, Three people in the same day through three different mediums asked me, hey, have you ever seen the film The Anonymous People? And I had never heard of it. And I said, no, but I'm happy to check it out. So I went on Netflix that night and watched it. And it, for me, it floored me. And I know for a lot of people in this movement, uh, they had a very similar experience with it. And I just, uh, I, I took my, my organizing hat, which had been sitting in the drawer for about a year and a half, almost two years at that point, and dusted it off and figured out how to get in touch with Greg Williams, the maker of that film. Mm -hmm. And I got in touch with Greg and I shared my story and my background with him. And he was, they were just in the beginning stages of uh, organizing the Unite to Face Addiction benefit concert that took place in October 2015, which as many folks know, was the launching event for Facing Addiction. Mm -hmm. and, um, and he, through a couple conversations later, I was offered a job to start organizing on that effort. And then after the rally, uh, Greg and uh, our, our other co-founder, Jim Hood, uh, invited me back on to be the director of outreach and engagement for the organization. So, you know, what is life like today? I love the work I get to do. And I, I I'll probably brag more than I should. I think I have the best job in the addiction space. And I say that because, because our coalition that we've built, which is over 800 organizations around the country, is made up of every different type of organization that does work in this space, recovery groups, family groups, prevention, so on and so forth. On any given day, I can talk to a person in recovery in Ohio, a family member who's gone through that awful loss of, of losing a child mm -hmm. in Michigan, who's now using that experience to help other families, to a prevention person in California, to a treatment provider in Texas. I can talk to all these different people, hear all of these different personal experiences, why mm -hmm. they come to the table. 
and then sit them all down together to think through how do we solve this problem. That's a gift to be able to listen to just this wide array of personal experiences and to feel like we're offering, you know, real solutions because every viewpoint is represented at the table. Personally, um, you know, I can point to, again, I can point to the great job. I can point to the amazing new wonderful romantic partner. I can point to the relationship with these two rotten kids that I have. I can, I can <laughs> point to all that stuff. But for me, really, I mean, the, the joy of recovery is that inner, that equanimity, just this feeling of um, trying to live life in a very different way. Lord knows I don't do it perfect, uh, as I <laughs> often share. Sure. Uh, it's a process. And uh, I, I, uh, I adhere to the uh, progress, not perfection mantra, because uh, if it was about perfection, I don't know where I'd be. Sure. But um, for those things, I, gratitude often seems like too light a word. I, I mean, I, I, I really, uh, recovery has just brought me a, a new way of thinking uh, and approaching life that I never considered uh, while still uh, living with an act and substance use disorder. And the job is great and all that stuff, but it's, it's just one piece of a, a much more uh, joyful pie, if you will. I love that. So what can people do? So tell people, first of all, where they can donate money because we need money to do the work, right? Um, Absolutely. And, and facing addiction is, you know, always, we have a ton of, we're, we're always developing new programs, new resources. We want to, this year we're working on getting out into 25 communities to try to organize community organizing trainings. We did 15 this past fall, but like you said, it, it does all require financial support. Facing addiction does not accept donations from pharmaceutical companies or alcohol companies or tobacco companies. So we really have to count on uh, the grassroots and some very generous contributions from other individual donors. So if you go to facingaddiction.org, you can donate there. And, and really, you know, everybody pinches pennies. I, I certainly do. But even, you know, $10, $10 a month is, can go to, it goes such a long way to helping us continue to develop these programs that can help individuals, help their families. Uh, so I hope folks will go to facingaddiction.org and consider making a donation. And while they're there, look at some of those resources, get a sense of what is it that that donation goes to. Uh, there's a tab called resources on our page. Look at some of the things we've developed. And then also there's another tab on there called what can I do? Perfect. Uh, and, and there are so many steps that you as an individual can take in your community on a daily basis. Uh, for starters, we have a program uh, that we call the Facing Addiction Activist Program. Really simple. If you sign up, we ask you, we, it's, it's a big lift we're asking you. We're asking you to take one simple action a week. Every Tuesday, uh, we send a note out to all of our activists to take one simple action. So sometimes it's, you know, reposting a key article on social media. Sometimes it's calling your senator to ask them to support something. Sometimes it's uh, sharing a personal story uh, with a specific issue as it relates to addiction. But if you sign up to with our activist program, one simple action you can take every week. Uh, there's also any number of grassroots steps that you'll find there on the website underneath what can I do that relate back to those five key agenda points. So uh, if humanizing addiction for both the afflicted and the affected, which is action agenda item number one is something that you want to do, check out our website because underneath, underneath what can I do, we have two or three things you can do to help us address that bigger issue. Um, the other thing that I encourage folks to do, and I often do this when I get uh, when people reach out to me, is connect with 
other organizations in your community. I mentioned before that Facing Addiction has a coalition of supportive organizations, partnering organizations. We call it the Facing Addiction Action Network. And just this past weekend, we crossed the 800 organization threshold. Over 800 organizations from around the country are part of the Action Network, which means that they stand in support of our agenda. They stand in support of the work that we do. And when I get... Um, so when someone reaches out to me, I try to connect them to our activist program. I point them to the things that they can do. And then I also try to connect them with some of those partners. Um, we focus primarily on national, uh, on national legislation, for example. But we have this amazing network of organizations who are in your community in many cases that are doing tremendous work. We want to connect you to those resources. This isn't about us. This is about our movement. And this is about the issue that we care about so deeply. So check out those network partners. You can look at it by your state. You can look at it by type. You want to get involved with a prevention group. You can look at all the prevention groups that are part of it or a recovery group. You can do the same thing. Um, and you can check all of that out. Again, you can donate, get involved, look at our partners at facingaddiction.org. And, and I hope folks will take an opportunity to do that. Um, and there's just more to come. We've got a million new projects in the works and it's just going to continue to grow, but it takes all of you. It takes that, that a movement. It takes an army around the country. We can't do it all on our own. We need your backing and your support. That's awesome. So if you are confused, friends, about what you can do, let me alleviate some of that confusion because there's definitely something you can do um, if you go to facingaddiction.org you'll see there's a huge donate button. I've pressed it at least once in my life and I will press it again um, and donate some of my coins to this important work. The other thing is you can become an activist. You can, um, maybe you're already affiliated with someone in the Action Network, um, but there's always something to do um, and it cannot, we can't afford to have it be someone else's problem. Um, we're too far gone right now. We're too far down the road for it to be someone else's problem. This is our, all of our problems. So, and we definitely have um, an opportunity to turn things around. So I think we have gotten so much information and I'm sure people need to kind of chew on it. I love your enthusiasm, Michael. It's very contagious. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. It's, yeah, I, I, I suppose that's an okay thing to, to have contagious. I'm just, you know, I'll just. Passion. I'm, I'm, well, you know, I think that, I think for, for individuals in recovery, I think this is something that most understand that when you've been to that, the depths of a substance use disorder and the sure. depths of active addiction, and then you get the opportunity to try to take that experience and, and help other people. Um, I, I, it's not hard to, uh, it, it's not hard to be enthusiastic for some of this stuff. And we're making a, a ton of progress. I mean, when you think about where we were on this issue 10 years ago, 20 years ago versus today, uh, we're moving in the right direction, but there's a lot that we need to do. Um, sure. And uh, I hope that folks will get connected with us again, facingaddiction.org. Uh, anybody is willing to, who wants to reach out to me. I, I love chatting with people directly. Um, M K I N G M King at facingaddiction.org. I'm happy to chat with anybody and help you get plugged into some of those networks. If you have any questions. Um, but yeah, it's, it takes an army. It takes a movement and we're building it, but we're still built. There's still a lot of work to do. Totally. I love that. And so friends, I will include um, Michael's contact information, whatever he hands over to me, I will include in the show notes. 
as well as I've been taking notes of the links that we've discussed during this podcast episode so that you'll have those readily available to just click on your smartphone or on your laptop or desktop, um, depending on where you're listening to this, um, this episode. So thank you, Michael, so much for being a part of not only the larger picture, but um, taking some time out of your day to spend here with me and listeners um, sharing your own experience, strength, and hope um, of your road to recovery and um, encouraging us to kind of join in and do some of the work as well. So I really appreciate you being here and sharing so openly and honestly. Well, thank you again for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure. Oh, absolutely. So friends, I, I forgot to mention this to you, Michael, on the, um, pre, the pre-call, but I always read a story from Humans of New York. And I started doing that because I felt like, um, you know, I definitely resonate with stories. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's really important for us to remember that there's a big old world outside of ourselves because sometimes it can, we can get bogged down with life, right? And um, <laughs> yeah. I love humans of New York and I love especially when they go to other places. And so this appears to be a young woman and she says, this is my older sister's business. I'm just helping her out. I barely knew her for most of my life. We came from a village and she moved to the city when I was a baby. She supported our whole family. Everyone depended on her. She sent us money every month, but I barely knew her. I only spoke to her on the phone. A few years ago, I followed in her footsteps and moved to Jakarta, and now we've become very close. I can finally witness the sacrifices that she's made for us. She works all the time. She owns a small restaurant and runs a furniture business out of her home. Even though she's a woman, she does all the marketing and negotiating herself. She wakes up early in the morning to search for wood and torn out buildings. When she comes home at night, her body is so tired that she goes directly to sleep. I want to become like her so she can rest, but I'm afraid I'm too naive. When I watch her, I feel like she can do anything. And so that is, um, and right, Jakarta, Indonesia. So it's beautiful. It kind of resonates your point of it takes all of us. You know, it it can't just be one person. All right. So friends, thank you so much for joining us. Um, Thank you as always for the love and support. If you want to support this podcast, I'm on patreon.com forward slash the type a hippie. And I just really, really appreciate you being here. I honor the place within you where the entire universe resides. I honor the place within you of love, of light, of truth, of peace. I honor the place within you where when you are in that place in you and I'm in that place in me, there is only one of us. So have a gratitude filled rest of your day. Um, I hope to hear from you soon. You can always email me. Thanks for subscribing and rating this podcast and sharing it. My name is Chidima, also known as the Type A Hippie. And this is the Type A Hippie Podcast, episode 83. Namaste.